Thank you for that beautiful music, lifting our hearts towards heaven. In their bulletin, you have a tan sheet that has some of the notes and some blanks you may want to fill in as we go through the message this morning. It's hard not to feel when you're reading the stories of Jesus that in the times in which he lived, that they aren't stories about the times in which we live. And as we look at some of the challenges that he faced and the disciples faced, it is not altogether different from the situations that we face now. The relational challenges that are in our world and the relational challenges that are in our church are not decreasing, they're only increasing. And this story has much to to teach us that we are going to be looking at this morning and reflecting on our own lives. I'd like to ask the Holy Spirit to help if you'd bow your heads. Lord, as we open up your word, I pray that you would give us insight and understanding into our own hearts, more especially yours, and from your word that we may believe and that we we may receive and that we may live. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The story is from Matthew chapter 15, and it's a unique story. It's different from other stories. But before you go to that story, perhaps you should, we should remind ourselves of the situation that we are headed to in, in this world and why the relational challenges in this story are going to become more and more apropos and more and more needed as we go forward. <clears throat> we are living in challenging times when the politics of the country are becoming more and more partisan, polarized. It's hard to keep that same spirit out of the church. When things are partisan, when you hear how, where somebody stands on one issue, you immediately assume you know where they stand on all issues, and you quit listening right there. You write people off, party lines are drawn, and it's devastating for a family, and for the church, and for the world. But Jesus says, As the time comes, approaches when he's going to come back in Matthew chapter 24, that this is going to get heated up more and more. And in Matthew 24 and verse 9, I am reading some scriptures this morning that are not on your notes. If you want to write the references down, you're welcome to. This is Matthew 24 and verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. It's not really a pleasant picture. There's a time coming when we will be hated by all nations if you're a true follower of Christ. Now, we know what it's like to be hated by somebody. Maybe you've been hated by a neighbor. Maybe you've been hated by a friend or what was a friend or a family member. I don't know. But you haven't been hated by all nations. So if there's ever there's a time when we better know how to stand firm and be strong and not wear our nerves on the outside and be so sensitive that we're destroyed by the hatred around us, now's the time to prepare. And perhaps the challenges, the relational challenges that we go through now are lovingly allowed to us and to our journey to prepare us for something even more. But when Jesus goes and he looks at the relational challenge between the disciples and the world, then he focuses to something that's even more shocking, and that's the relationships within the church in verse 10. And then many will be offended and will betray one another, and will hate one another. Betrayal is a word for relational dynamic from within. It's not somebody from outside the circle. It's Judas from within. Many from within the church also will be offended. It's not just the people in the world. What causes them to be offended? There may may be a number of things, but I'm drawn to a few verses later when it says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world 
And that promise that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world is within the context and the environment of some very severe opposition from without and within. And perhaps it's the true gospel that causes people to be offended. It's the truth. It happened in Jesus' time. The crowds followed him, but then the crowds left him. They cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then they cried, crucify him, crucify him. And the gospel that seems to be popular, the true gospel will stand apart to be very unpopular without and within. And so, offended. Have you been offended? I want to challenge our hearts to think very carefully this morning about the things that we allow ourselves to be offended by or with. This story is different than the other stories when Jesus is traveling in Matthew 15. This is in the middle of his ministry. He has his disciples with him. When Jesus did ministry on earth, he did ministry in two primary locations. Most of his ministry was up in the north around the Sea of Galilee. Most of the miracles that you read about in the Bible or in the Gospels are from that region. And there's one town that Jesus did more miracles than any other. Which town is that? It's Capernaum. And I believe it's Matthew that calls that town Jesus' own town, own city. Even though that's not the one where he was born. <laughs> Jesus also went down to Jerusalem, down here in Judea, and for the feast, and he was down there, and he did ministry down there too. And then he would travel back up north, and he would travel through Samaria. It was on one of these trips when he was in Sychar that he met the woman at the well. She was not an Israelite. She was still a descendant of Abraham. She was a Samaritan. But now the real outcast, if you think the Samaritans were on the outside, it was not near as much on the outside as the heathens. The heathens up north were the Syrians. <clears throat> up in Syrophoenicia, they were Canaanites. And they were not connected to God's people. They were still in darkness and in heathendom. And there was one and only one story where Jesus left Israel and went up into this heathen territory and it is in Matthew chapter 15. He goes outside where he normally goes. It's a missionary trip that Jesus takes. It would not be for Jesus to go to Athens. It would not be for Jesus to go to Corinth or to Rome, to Europe or to Asia or to Africa during his ministry. That would be for his disciples. But Jesus did travel over 35 miles. It's about 35 miles from the north side of the Sea of Galilee to Tyre. But the Bible doesn't just mention Tyre. The Bible says the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is even farther north. So more than 30 miles, Jesus and his disciples walk. And there's only one story on this missionary journey. It's as if Jesus took this journey just because of this one woman. Now, the people of Syria knew about Jesus. Matthew tells us that his fame, Matthew chapter 4, there's a verse that says his, his fame had spread all through Syria and all the other regions south from Syria as well. So the name of Jesus was not un unknown up there. In fact, many people would bring their sick people from Syria down to Galilee and Jesus would heal them there. But on this trip, Jesus leaves the border and he's deep within heathen territory where you can teach lessons that you can't teach back home. Because when you go and you leave your home, you learn lessons you can't learn at home. Which is why Jesus told us to go. And it's why the disciples went. No doubt this story that we're about to read is a story that was oft repeated in the early church as a basis for their missionary efforts. When Jesus took this journey during his short three and a half years of ministry. 
This story is like no other story because this interaction that Jesus has with this woman is like no other interaction. As the story unfolds, the disciples are inappropriate. Jesus himself has a hard exterior and says words unlike he spoke to anybody else ever. Unless it's his apparent cold reception. You can only interpret this story properly in the context of the other stories of Jesus' ministry because this story is so unusual. Matthew 15 and verse 21, it says, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her. What did he answer her? Not a word. I do have on my handout in the bulletin. And also there's a kid zone in there. Some kids may want to reference that if you want to uh, use that. Uh, But I have uh, blanks uh, on the handout. And you can fill that out as we go along. The Bible says he answered her not a word. The silence of Jesus. There she is begging, help. Waiting for an answer from Jesus and there is none. Ignored. Have you ever been ignored? Have you ever heard the, the response of silence? As the story unfolds, Jesus is testing her faith. And he tests ours too. And he's about to teach a profound lesson to the disciples and to us and to her. And she keeps persisting and she keeps pressing. And then the disciples get involved. Verse 23, his disciples came and urged him saying, send her where? Away. Away. Uh, For she cries out after us. They were not shy about their rejection of this woman. They were not pleased that she was there or that she was asking this from Jesus. She was a nuisance and she was a bother. Please, get rid of her. No more. And there she is. And Jesus is watching and, and listening and the rude disciples. And she, she hears... She understands. Does she leave? She stays. And then she hears Jesus again. Verse 24, he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, that's not very good news for her because she's not from the house of Israel. She's from Canaan. I was not sent for you, and I'm not here for you. On the surface. However, Ellen White is not wrong in the Desire of Ages when Ellen White says that this woman was a lost sheep of the house of Israel. As a neighbor of Israel, that Israel should have reached out to, and Jesus is doing it instead. And what seemed to be a rejection, which was testing her faith, was actually a promise because the lost sheep of the house of Israel by invitation would go to the whole world and would include every one of us. And so she persists. In verse 25, she came and and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. When it, it's not hard to catch what Jesus is saying. Little dogs, a reference to who? To my people? If you want to talk about being personal... The children are in the story too, but I'm not one of them. I'm one of the dogs. And she's there. 
And she responds to Jesus in verse 27, and she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Amen? There was only two people on the ministry of Jesus that he said had great faith. Both of them were outsiders. Both of them were Gentiles. This was one woman. The other was a centurion, a Roman centurion at Capernaum. The ones that are on the outside, that the way is blocked, they have to overcome the barriers to get on the inside. Great faith. Great faith. And this seeming rejection the woman turned it around as a reason that Jesus should bless her. It's not good to give the bread to the dogs. And on one hand, she's not there to defend her worthiness because she's not there to say that she's one of the children. She's willing to accept the position of a dog. And on the other hand, she is there to defend her worthiness Or at least her need. Because even the dogs, do they not get the crumbs that fall from the master's table? She wasn't worthy of this healing. And neither was anybody else that was healed by Jesus. Who of us are? Who of us are worthy of the blessings that he comes to give? So this woman, she persists Jesus made this trip so that the disciples could see this kind of faith because they were going to need this kind of faith going forward. They didn't have this kind of faith that this woman had yet. The trials, the heat would be turned up for the disciples when they would go through their own hour of trial and rejection. You know, at the cross, they ran. The disciples fled. But through the crucible of the trials they would go through, their faith would be stretched. They would understand some of what this lady also was teaching them by her example. She has much to teach us today. And I'm afraid if we don't learn from this woman today that our spiritual journey is greatly threatened. As you look at her faith... The yellow words I have on the screen are the ones that are the blanks on your handout if you're filling that in. She did not leave and wait for Jesus to find, find friendlier, friendlier disciples. And I say that because many would. Many would say, enough. I'm not, I am not sticking around for this. I'm out of here. I'm not going to be treated like this. The disciples didn't want her and they let it be known. And she could have said, all right, I'll come back, Jesus, when you find some more sensitized disciples. They're not very cultured. But she needed the blessing now. And she wasn't going to let some rude disciple keep her away from Jesus. How about you? People will say today, too, I'm out of here. I'm not putting up with this. And they may have a legitimate story. She did. She had a legitimate story. What the disciples did was wrong. But even when we're legitimately offended, and when we have been legitimately wronged, even then, it's going to be those moments we're going to have to swallow our pride And handle it in a way that's not natural so that we can still be with Jesus. So she didn't leave just because of this negative encounter in church. And we're all going to have those negative encounters in church because we're all human. There's going to be that encounter in church and that relationship that rankles on you. And as the memory spins in your mind longer and longer, you've got the choice where it either deepens into bitterness 
and threatens your connection with Jesus or you forgive. Because when we don't forgive, that person follows us around and continues to abuse. It, they may be a legitimate, they have wronged you. But unless you cut those ties and forgive, which forgiving is not saying that the person wasn't wrong. Forgiving is accusatory. But saying that you're not going to take vengeance and you're going to leave it up to God. And that's what forgiveness means. But in the moment, she, she, she stayed there in spite of the prejudice and the wrong of the disciples. She continued, repeatedly cried for help. She would not give up. It's a great example for our prayers. Jesus doesn't just answer every prayer the way we want it the first time we ask. You're going to have to wrestle with God on your own as to why. But he doesn't always give those answers the way we ask. When we ask, she came back and she came back again. It was a good request. Jesus, she could see in his face, even though the exterior, the shell of the words that he spoke seemed so hard, she could see his urge and his longing to bless her, which gave her courage to keep asking. He couldn't hide it. Jesus was full of sympathy for the lost sheep. The Bible tells us so. So she kept asking. She was not wounded or distracted by the depreciating words of Jesus. Now, I had to think a long time yesterday to decide what word I was going to use to describe Jesus' words. And I finally chose the word depreciating. Because they were. The words of Jesus diminished the woman when you first heard him. I'm not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It was a test of faith. I'm not going to throw the bread to the dogs. Talk about getting your value lessened. Straight from the mouth of Jesus. Her faith was being tested. But it was, Jesus was longing to give her this blessing. And he did heal. He waited, but he healed to teach a great lesson. So we're going to have to learn some lessons from this lady if we're going to succeed on the spiritual journey ahead. Because if Jesus would say later that the time is coming when many will be offended... We're going to have to choose carefully what it is that we choose to be wounded by and what it is that we choose to be offended by. Perhaps the world in which we are living, maybe it's more important than ever before. As things polarize, we have to think about our own woundedness. When in some corners there's a great tendency for hyper sensitivity and you go to some places there's such an aversion not to even hear a word spoken that would differ from my own opinion we create safe spaces we create trigger warnings microaggressions are create, equated with physical violence and treated and punished as such some critique the age some parts of it as emotionally and socially fragile. Some from previous generations would have a hard time recognizing some of the social dynamics of the age we live in. When we have to insulate ourselves so that we don't even hear diverging opinions or viewpoints. But we're going to have to, we're all going to be wounded. But we're going to have to decide if we're going to let somebody else's indiscretion and immaturity, perhaps, if it's a legitimate wound, keep us out of the kingdom of heaven or not. I remember when I was younger, somebody, one of my friends at the church said something to my brother. Now my brother was suffering health challenges. My brother was in a wheelchair for four years. 
He was in bed the last nine months. He passed away on July 12 of 2011. During the journey, I remember, um, you know, we prayed for him in church and our family prayed for him and he was anointed, as the Bible says, to do. And I remember one of the church members coming to Ben and telling him, you know, if you had more faith, God would heal you. And I remember my brother telling me on the phone when I was in Tennessee, he said, you know, he said, I think that it takes more faith to trust God in, he- in, in sickness than it does in healing. Right. Now, some people aren't even trying to hurt somebody else. They may actually be trying to help. But in a moment of indiscretion, you know, we all haven't gone through the same things. We all don't understand each other very much sometimes. We walk different paths. And in this uh, moment of immaturity, we say something that really later we would think differently about. And I have friends right here in this room. You know some that have been healed when they've been sick seen God do miraculous things for people and bring healing and have wonderful testimonies. And you have testimonies of others who, through the sickness until the very end, hang on to God and trust Him, which is also a testimony. God calls us to walk different paths, and we trust Him. And as we're all living together as one family in one church, All those relational dynamics emerge along the way as we say different things to each other. And so we learn some lessons from the disciples. Let me, uh, oh, finally, uh, she humbly defended her need. Though she was not willing to be wounded, And to let that bring bitterness of soul, she pressed her need and she did not give up. Now this is going to have to be the watchword that we're going to live by. If we're going to survive spiritually in this church, in any church, and in the road ahead. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Nothing shall offend them. I was reading... Ministry Magazine, April edition, an article by Pastor Schultz. He was in second grade with his friend Juan. He went through school together with Juan, playing soccer, going to church together, and going to Sabbath school. Years later, Juan stopped attending church. Twenty years after he started attending church, he started messaging him on, on the internet. They're exchanging messages. They're reconnecting from their childhood, sharing memories, catching up on where each other are. A year of this, one year later, realizing that he was ready to come back, he invited Juan to come back to church, and Juan agreed to come. Two weeks later, Juan goes to church with his friend that's invited him back. He's been gone for 20 years. He walks into church. The elder meets him there. Hadn't seen him in a long time. Trying to be funny, he says, Juan, what has the devil done to you to be away from church so long? We don't always get it. And even the best of us say things sometimes that we regret. And Juan didn't let it discourage him. He kept coming back to church. And you can too. Maybe somebody said the same thing to you. You don't have to let that stop you from getting to Jesus. The church is messy and ugly as it is, as his family, as his body. 
So once we are so secure, once God's law has been written on our hearts and we are so secure in our identity and our connection with Jesus, nothing will offend us. And that's where we're going to need to be for the road ahead. 1 Peter 2.20 says, For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And that's going to happen even in church. You're going to do something good and somebody's going to criticize you for it. You're going to give a great gift and it's not going to be appreciated and somebody's going to ridicule you. It happened for Jesus. It happened for his disciples. It's going to happen for us in this world. And once in a while, it's going to happen even from another follower of Christ. Thus Ellen White would write in Ministry of Healing, page 485, we should not allow our feelings to be easily, what's the word? Wounded. We are to live not to guard our feelings or our reputation, but to save souls. That's because we got to stop thinking about ourselves and our feelings and we got to start thinking about somebody else's and their salvation. And once you start thinking about somebody else's feelings instead of brooding all week on your own wounds, you're going to be living a whole new life, the life Jesus came to give. As we become interested in the salvation of souls, we cease to mind the little differences that so often arise in our association with one another. Whatever others may think of us or do to us, it need not disturb our oneness with God with Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit. Nobody on this planet, I mean nobody on this planet, should be able to say anything to you that will disconnect you from Jesus. That should not be able to happen. And the moment that it does happen and you allow somebody else's inappropriate words to disconnect you from Jesus, you better go back to him and you better ask for strength. Because your life depends upon it. Well, as we put ourselves in the place of this woman in this story, we learn a lot from her. Perhaps, if we can handle it, we should put ourselves in the place of the disciples. Because perhaps we've all been them. Perhaps we're the ones that have been so insensitive towards others. And have tested their faith. And have caused some to turn away. I wonder, why didn't Jesus fire his disciples? I mean, there was, a, there was some incredibly frustrating moments for Jesus. One of them was when the, the, the children were coming to be blessed at Jesus. And the disciples sent the children away. And Jesus was sorely displeased. He rebuked the disciples, says in the book of Mark. And this was another moment he could have fired them. And you wonder, how could the disciples do that? Of course, if you're to honestly put yourself in their shoes and in the context of the day, the national prejudice of the day made this kind of behavior as normal as could be. That's how you behaved without even thinking. You walled yourself off. You insulated yourself. (coughs) You know, back then, party lines were drawn along nationalistic lines. And they often are today too. But often, they're drawn along idealistic lines too. We wall ourselves off. We insulate ourselves And we won't associate with the others. We're going to stay in our camp and we're going to defend our camp to the death. And that was the environment that the disciples were living in. It wasn't only national. Within Israel, then there was was camps within Israel too. There was Pharisee or Sadducee and you're going to defend your camp until you die. And this prejudice against the Canaanites was just part of who they were. And thus it was that 
during their time with Jesus, they had to unlearn habits from their culture. Do you think we might have to learn, unlearn some habits from our culture? Do you think we have to, might have to think a little bit more critically about our own history and our own attitudes at times? Yes. Jesus did not unemploy the 12 and look for friendlier disciples. He patiently helped them learn. And perhaps this is part of the most hopeful part of the story for me. Because if I was a CEO, I would have let them go, perhaps. Found some new ones. But since I've been the disciple and I've spoken injudicious words myself, I'm sure glad God hasn't given up on me, aren't you? Have you? And so when you speak these, these inappropriate words, God's willing to work with you again. Aren't you glad about that? That gives me a lot of hope. So the disciples didn't learn it in a day and they didn't learn it in a year, but over the course of a few years, they learned it. Jesus is very patient with them. Whatever God might be trying to teach us to become more sensitized to the world we're living in, the faster we learn it, the better. All right, the book of Proverbs. This gives us the wisdom we're going to need to be, to have, to live properly on the road ahead. Proverbs says a lot about words. And this can describe you. You can be a changed person. You may have been bitter for 20 years. You can let it go. You can be healed. I've seen it before. God is changing people's lives and hearts today. He was changing people's lives and hearts yesterday. I've seen it happen in this church. I've seen it happen in other churches. I've seen it in my family. I've seen it in my own life. And when you see yourself wrong, you don't have to be that forever. You can change. And these words from Proverbs that describe the mouth of the righteous can be your mouth even if it hasn't been before. Mouth of the righteous, Proverbs ten eleven, is a well of life. And the, several of these verses, verses attach our words to life. Your, your words can give life to people. And you're either pulling in one direction or another. You're either giving le, uh, life or death by your words. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. Your words can be beautiful, something people remember for a long time. The lips of the righteous feed many. You know that conversation you have and you just, you, you, you're just lifted the rest of the day because of an incredible conversation you had with somebody and the words they spoke to you. They fed you and you can do it for others too. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. And maybe this is the most interesting of them all in the context of what I've been saying today. Because as God works in your life, you may be a person that lacks discretion, but along the way, God can teach you how to speak appropriate words to people at the appropriate time. Proverbs 12, verse 18, the tongue of the wise promotes health. When you have a conversation with somebody, it should light up their face. It should give them better health. 15, verse 4 says, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. You know, you've had those conversations in church too, so don't just remember the bitter ones. You've had the conversations and the relationships that have saved you. People have spoken words of encouragement that have made all the difference for you right here in this church. So remember those conversations too and pass it on to somebody else. Words spoken in due season, verse 23 says, how good it is. The right word at the right time when you can perceive what somebody needs to hear at that moment and you have the wisdom to speak it, how good it is. It saves lives. Proverbs 16 verse 24 says, pleasant words like a honeycomb 
sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. Proverbs 18.21 is a verse I hear our head elder Tom Wilson quote quite often. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Your words are giving life into this world or bringing death. So choose your words carefully. Every single one of us has a measure of influence, some more than others, but you have influence. And you have more influence with some people than anybody else. So use it wisely. Proverbs 25 verse 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. All right. Anybody here this morning? Is that how you want your words to be? Beautiful. Bringing life like apples of gold and settings of silver. Does anybody, do you want your words to be like this? God can help you. He can work a miracle in your heart. He can give you the right kind of discretion and to overcome your past and the indiscretions like the disciples had to. Galatians 6 verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That only happens when we know each other, when we understand each other's burdens and when we lift each other's burdens. How is it that we bear one another's burdens? It's often by the words that we speak. And through the words that we speak to them, we can lift their burdens. This is a job that's given to every single one of us. No matter what, no matter what spiritual gift we have, we can do this. It's for every single personality type. We can lift one another's burdens. The sanguine will do a little bit of lifting for a lot of people. The shyer people will do a lot of lifting with fewer people. And the shyer people have deeper relationships. Sometimes and often. But every single personality type can be a burden lifter and bring life. Oh, can it really happen? You can turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5. I have a couple verses here, not on the screen. The church, it's an ugly place sometimes. I'm just telling you, don't always expect to walk into church and to think this is a beautiful place. The Bible tells me so. I'm getting ready to read it. There's problems. There's situations. There's ugliness. And there's messes. Because you're here and I'm here and we're people. And Ephesians chapter 5. This is God's view on the church. And you know, sometimes the artist paint this picture, the bride of Christ, with Jesus, who is being wedded to the church, his bride. But they kind of avoid what it actually says is happening when they paint it. Maybe your imagination can actually engage what this verse says. It's not because the bride of Christ is beautiful. She's ugly. Or is she? Notice what the scripture says. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Stains, wrinkles, a mess. Jesus is not looking at her beauty. Because she's not there yet. Jesus is looking at her potential beauty. With the promise there that he is going to wash her and to cleanse her and make her pure and white without spot or wrinkle. And you have to have those same kind of eyes. Because that person sitting next to you, in front of you, and behind you that you think is so ugly, 
and you can't stand them until you look a little deeper and you see their potential and what Christ can do with them. And that's what God calls and requires us to do for each other. That in spite of our own defects and shortcomings and ugliness, that we would see each other for the potential beauty that God is leading us to, just like God sees his church. I have a question for you. If you've been wounded by somebody in church, are you going to let that keep you out of heaven? And that legitimate story that you have, and it sounds so good, and I didn't, I called it legitimate. You may have a legitimate story. Some people's stories are illegitimate too, by the way. But let's just stick with the legitimate ones. That legitimate story, you were wronged and you were crossed and you were done wrong. And you whisper, you know, and you pet, did you hear what somebody said? Do you know what what's your name did? And, and it passes and people talk and there's the gossip and I'm not putting up with it. I'm out of here. I don't have to tolerate this. I don't have to stick around to be treated like this. And we garner all the sympathy from people we're talking to and it sounds so good. We repeat and we repeat. But you know, when we're standing there and we're looking at Jesus and we're on the wrong side of the wall and Jesus is asking us, how in the world? Why are you there? Jesus, I thought I was on the inside. Well, Jesus, don't you you know, don't you remember what what's-their-name did to me? And you start, you know the time, and you start to tell the story, but the story that sounds so good to other people somehow doesn't sound like such a good excuse to Jesus. You're not able to finish the story to the one who suffered shame and rejection to the point of death for you. That story that sounds so good to other people sounds a whole lot different at the foot of the cross. And sometimes we just need to bury them right there. That's why I put that picture up on there. There's no need for any of us to be locked out of the kingdom because of some wound that somebody else has committed against us. You can forgive, you can heal, you can let it go, and you can be new. Forgiveness is accusatory, but forgiveness is letting it go. The other question I have for you this morning, maybe you don't identify with this very well because you've experience such great things in church. That probably means you haven't been here very long. <laughs> no, I didn't mean to say it that way. But I've had beautiful experiences in church. But when you're here for a little bit, if you're still in your honeymoon, expect it. You're going to have a negative moment. Just prepare yourself for that. But we have beautiful connections and beautiful relationships. But there are many of us who have hardly had anything terrible happen. We've been on the inside. We don't know what this woman's story is like because we haven't been on the outside. We haven't been rejected. We have status. We're professional. People love us. We're popular. We're like the disciples, perhaps. And if we're one of those, this morning, would you like to be a little bit more sensitized to those that are on the outside and need tender words? I would like to read one last scripture with you. It's from Psalm 147. Psalm 147. These words in this psalm can be you. They need to be you. The church needs you. And in a sense, God needs you. This psalm describes God's ministry. But if you reflect your character, then his ministry will be your ministry. 
So as I read this part of this psalm, it uses the word he. He is talking about God. But if you're his child and you're reflecting his character, then he needs to be talking about you too. Psalm 147, starting at the beginning. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. Those of us on the outside, we have hope after all. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. That's what Jesus does. If you have a broken heart and if you have wounds, there's somebody who can heal them like nobody else. It's Jesus. Would you go to him? Would you allow him to bind up those wounds and to heal you? And when you have that person next to you that is broken and wounded... It's your words when the Holy Spirit is speaking through you that can bind up their wounds and heal them. Your words can bring healing to people. The person that's been shoved to the outside or the person that's just drifted. Your words can bind them up and you can bring back the outcasts. He counts the number of the stars He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. As you respond this morning in your heart, you want to be somebody who heals the broken and hearted. Do you? Do you want to be somebody who heals the broken and hearted? As the closing song is sung, I want you to think about these words and I want you to pray. The closing song is not a congregational piece. This is a special music. It is thankfulness to God for what he has done in coming to this world. The name of the song is Thank You. It's composed and written by Brenda Keish and is sung by some of our favorite musicians, some of our favorite musicians on the piano as well. Talk to God why this song is being sung, that you can be the person that God wants you to be and that we can be led along the road as the disciples were, even though we haven't gotten it when we should have. Maybe we should have gotten this a while ago. We can get it now. God can teach us some lessons and make us the people he wants us to be.